You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Welcome everybody, I'm Scott Galbach, I'm a professor in the political science department and board of the point, the director of CRECA, our center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia. Uh, so today our speaker comes to us all the way from uh, Sydney, Australia, but actually not really, so uh, by way of South Bend, uh, Indiana. Uh, so Graham Gill is a political scientist who specializes in Soviet uh, and Russian politics. He's professor emeritus of government uh, and international relations at the University of Sydney. Uh, and is a fellow of the Academy of the Social Sciences in his home country of Australia. Uh, he's the author of uh, numerous books on the development uh, of uh, Soviet and later the Russian political system, including most recently Collective Leadership in Soviet Politics, published this year. He's also published uh, widely on democratization, the role of the social class in uh, the state's political trajectory, uh, the nature and development of the modern state, uh, a variety of uh, important and related topics. And so, He's spending a semester at the Kellogg Institute at Notre Dame, so we're lucky to have him just down the road from us, uh, and therefore able to have him here for a, a talk uh, at, at our weekly seminar. And while at the Kellogg Institute, he's working on a comparative project entitled Bridling Autocrats, Limiting Executive Power in Authoritarian Polities, uh, which looks at the Soviet Union and at China and at uh, various countries in Latin America. So it's a thrill to have him with us today, today to discuss uh, uh, an important and uh, enduring topic, how strong is the Russian president? So thank you for being with us, and we look forward to your talk. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, it's, a great, it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, South Bend may be only just down the road, but I can tell you it seems to take a, it's a long road to travel. It takes a long time to get, uh, to get between one and the other. What I'm going to talk about today is the, uh, is the Russian presidency and, uh, and talk about how strong an institution it, uh, it actually is. The reason for, the reason for, for doing this is that, that I, I really want to see whether I'm going to be able to use the contemporary um, Russian president, presidential system, and in particular Putin and, uh, and Yeltsin, in my current project, because I'm not sure whether I can fit them in or, or, or not for a variety of reasons. So this is sort of, in a sense, laying the groundwork for that. Now, when the 1993 constitution, new constitution, was introduced in Russia, there was considerable discussion in the West, and many people called the system that it set up super-presidential. In other words, the argument was that the presidency was an immensely powerful institution. Now clearly the presidency is a powerful institution, at least on paper. But what I'm going to suggest is that even on paper, it's nowhere near as powerful as those who argue that it was super presidential, that it's, that it's not as powerful as they say that it is. What I've put up here is, uh, is some of the principal powers of the, uh, of the Constitution, because what I want to do initially is simply to set out what the Constitution says about the Presidency. Not all of the powers are here, I acknowledge that, but it seems to me that these are the most important ones that the Constitution talks about. 
determines the guidelines of internal and foreign policy. Now, that seems to give the president the power overall to determine the way in which the country's going to proceed, determine both internal and foreign policy, in both the internal and foreign policy spheres. But the Constitution goes on to say that the president actually governs foreign policy. <coughs> it doesn't say that he does that about domestic policy. And this means that what the Constitution is actually saying is that the president's major scope, the president's major concentration should be in the foreign policy area, whereas it's left up to the Prime Minister and the government to look after the domestic sphere. That at least is the constitutional position. Because the, the, the president has the power to appoint leading figures in Russia, including Prime Minister with the, with the uh, agreement of the, the Duma, the approval of the Duma, the Deputy Prime Ministers on the proposal of the uh, Prime Minister, and a range of other figures, particularly in the judicial, uh, in the judicial field. The President is the Supreme Commander-in-Chief and the Head of the Security Council, so he has uh, significant oversight, if you like, of security issues. The President has legislative initiative, in other words, the President can introduce legislation, just like the two Houses of Parliament, and the President has the power to sign bills into law, and therefore, by implication, to not sign bills and to impose a veto. The President also has the power to issue decrees and orders, can also uh, introduce martial law and states of exception, and he has the power to dissolve the State Duma, the lower house, under certain conditions. Now, if you look at those, that, that seems to be quite an extensive array of powers that the, that the President has over policy and over appointments. But the Constitution also limits the President's power. Many of the appointments which he makes, which he can make, and I use he because it's been a he up until now, many appointments which he makes are subject to others' assent, to the agreement of the, of the lower house, mainly. Furthermore, the lower house, the Duma, is the body which controls the budget. Now, normally, when we're talking about political systems in the West, the location of the power to spend money is seen as one of the principal um, sources of power in a political system. And in the Russian one, that's located not in the president, but in the lower house. The president may be impeached under certain conditions. I'm not going to go into those conditions because the conditions are not easy to, not easy to meet, but nevertheless, he can be impeached. Furthermore, any refusal to sign a bill, to sign a bill into law, may be overturned. So if what we do is that we compare those limitations upon the, uh, compare those with the uh, powers that the presidency has, it's actually much more balanced than the people who argue for a super presidentialism would suggest. But what I want to suggest is that basically all the Constitution does, it's a big all, but all the Constitution does is that it creates a structure. It creates a set of principles, if you like, 
and it is up to the individual incumbent of the office, in this case the president, to work within those, to mould those, to go outside those. This is not a new argument. Um, if you go back to, I think it was uh, Neustadt's Power of the President in 1950, I think it was written, this is basically what he was saying, that the presidency, the American presidency, is moulded by, I don't think he used the word personality, but by the personality of the person within it. And clearly, if you wanted any more evidence of that, you only need to look at Washington today, where the personality of the president is clearly having an influence upon the constitutional notion of what the presidency is about. Now, what I want to argue is that Russia has seen two, basically two, presidents. I'm going to leave Medvedev to the side because Medvedev is, is, is sort of a blip, in the, a blip in the process and in any case he was by and large uh, lacked the independence of the other two. And I'm going to compare Yeltsin with, uh, with Putin and the basic argument is Yeltsin was a weak president and Putin has been a much stronger president. And I'm going to try to explain why that's the case. Okay, why, why is Yeltsin, why was Yeltsin a weak president? Well, I think basically there are four, there are four reasons. And the first one, and one which, which often now I think we do underestimate, is the difficulty of the task confronting him. I mean, this is, this is a guy who came to power and he had to deal with a range of, of, of major problems, any one of which would have been difficult to overcome and to, to resolve, but he had them all together. He had to bring about the reworking within Russia of economic structure, the political structure, the national structure, and the symbolic structure. Revolutions were occurring in all of these areas, and Yeltsin was in place, and he was the one who had to deal with it. Anybody, I think, even without the weaknesses that Boris Yeltsin obviously had, anyone would have had difficulty in, in resolving those problems. So this was a major issue for him. But I would argue that while it contributed to his weakness, because ultimately I think he just got overwhelmed by it, it contributed to his weakness, it wasn't the major reason for that weakness. I think the following three factors were more important. First is lack of a power base. I think when we, when we seek to look at how a president is able to develop the capacity to carry out the policies that he wants to carry out, we need to think really seriously about where that person gets the support to do that, the support within the leading bodies of the state. And most presidents, when they come to power, tend to bring in, on their tail, appointees with which, to, to, to leading positions, appointees with which they have some sort of commonality. It's usually a common background or they've worked together before. I mean, again, the, the American case is a clear example where the president has the power to appoint all of these, all of these people when they come into office. Well, in Russia, you had a, the same sort of thing. That, 
a new president coming to power needs to be able to rely upon the people that he has to work with, the people in charge of the ministries, the people in charge of the military and so forth. And so it's really important where a president was going to get those people from. Yeltsin's problem is that when he first came into power, the institutional structure upon which he had formerly rested was no longer relevant to him, the Communist Party. He made his career basically working his way up the Communist Party. He became the, 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 the party first secretary of a major regional town, sort of an opcom secretary, sort of like a state governor in a sense. Then he walked out of the party in, uh, in 1990, cutting a lot of his ties with it. And then he sought to run in politics as an independent. And he not only cut his ties with the party, he publicly disavowed the party. Now, this, of course, didn't mean that he couldn't utilise people that he'd, he'd, he'd worked with in the Communist Party, because clearly he did. When he first came to power, a lot of the people that he put into, into office around him came from Sverdlovsk, where, where he'd been the, uh, the, the party secretary. But in a sense, that wasn't, that wasn't viable in the long term for him because he'd rejected the party. So he didn't have behind him an inherited institutional power base. But in addition, he didn't really try to develop an institutional power base. The obvious sort of institution that you would have expected him to have, uh, to have used to try to develop as such a power base was a political party. Democratic Russia, which was sort of a, uh, an early developed political party in a sense, which supported him in 1989 and 1990, he refused to work at developing that into a political <laughs> party that could have given him the support that he needed. Similarly, he refused to build the party of his first prime minister, Yegor Gaidar, Russia's choice, into a political party that would support him, and he refused to rely upon the political party of the next major <coughs> prime minister, Chernomyrdin, our home is Russia. So Yeltsin, instead of, of seeking to build up and to utilise this institutional power base, did not do so, refused to do so. I mean, his argument was that he wants to rule for all Russians, that he shouldn't just be a, a representative of a party. And that's all very well in, in, in principle, but, of course, in practice, what it meant was that, that he lacked this sort of reservoir of people that he could call on who were united not to him simply on a personal basis, but on another sort of institutional basis. So instead what he did was that he, he tried to rest his power on two things. One was the, uh, was the development of the presidential administration, which is clearly very important, and he developed that along the lines of the old central committee apparatus, which is what he knew best, um, and this became the machine through which he tried to, to rule the country. And he tried to supplement that by seeking charismatic legitimation. He tried to present himself as sort of a charismatic leader by creating a direct tie between himself on the one hand and the populace on the other. Now, up until the middle of 1993, he had a basis upon which he could do that. This is, the, this is, this is 
the coup in 1991, where Yeltsin comes out being the, the seeming the victor and the saviour of, uh, of democracy and all the rest of it. And he tried to utilise that initially. But of course, this view of him as the saviour of democracy took a major hit in 1993, <coughs> and what he did was to close down the, uh, was to close down the parliament uh, and to use the military against the parliament. Nevertheless, he continued to try to, to, to establish this sort of relationship with the populace, which would have given him personally a power base in terms of popular support. But in a sense, this was, this was undermined by uh, problems with the policies that he was implementing. I mean, the, the, the way in which the economy just collapsed in uh, 1992 and remained at that sort of level up until 1998. So, so in terms of policy, this view of him as the, the saviour of the country took a hit. But of course, also, the, the attempt to create a charismatic image of himself uh, was also undercut by his ill health and by various other personal proclivities which he appeared to, uh, appeared to have at the time. So ultimately, what I'm saying here is that an important factor in Yeltsin not being able to, be de to become a powerful president, a strong president, is that he really lacked an established and clear power base from which to extend that persona and that power. The next major reason is the extent of opposition. I think if you, if you look at the period between 1992 and 1999, one of the things which becomes most clear is that virtually every segment of Russian society, or at least major elements of it, became offside with Yeltsin. He was opposed by both liberals and conservatives politically. He was, he was opposed in the media. Some of the media were clearly on side at various times, but was very critical at other times. And he was opposed by regional elites, by the people who ran the government in the, uh, uh, in the areas outside of Moscow. And so what you got was the image of a president who was unable to actually control the political system. He was unable to assert his dominance over the political system. He could never get a, a majority in the lower house, in the state Duma, which tried on a number of occasions to impeach him. And that meant that when he really wanted to get something done, very often he had to rely upon presidential decrees. Now, of course, some would argue, well, a president which issues decrees just shows how powerful he is because he's independent of the rest of the political system. But in this case, it showed the exact reverse. It showed that he could not work the political system. He could not make it function in the way in which he hoped it would and other people had hoped uh, that it would. So that the, the extent of the opposition was significant and it was both it was political in terms of political elites but it was also in the streets because people were disillusioned by the economic difficulties that they had to overcome and were disillusioned by the, the, the apparent um, unpredictability of Yeltsin. And the problem was highlighted by the fact that for, for many, and this is, this is even worse than being seen as weak, he became seen as the fool. 
he became seen as, if you like, a figure of almost fun. Hence, the puppet, where the uh, where on the on one of the major television national television stations they had this they had this um, program called Cookley Dolls, and every time you would have Yeltsin on there, and he would be shown as a drunk and sort of sitting there with his arm around Chernomirden and they'd be singing songs and all of this sort of thing. So he became a, a, figure, of, a figure of fun in a way that a president should never be. One of Putin's earliest moves was to get Kukli taken off the television. So the extent of the opposition was, was, was a factor and his inability to overcome. The final factor is temperament. Uh, Yeltsin was, I think, one of, those, one of those politicians whose motto was crash through or crash. In other words, he was not the sort of person who would reach out to compromise very often. Rather, what he did was to, in a sense, get, dig himself into a position rather than seek to moderate the position in order to reach out to people around him to get the measures through. This is seen best in the, his inability to work with people to create a party within the legislature. A lot of his problems were because he could not get a majority in the legislature. And he couldn't get a majority because basically he didn't... Well, one reason is he didn't put in the effort to try to establish that majority. So in this sense... In this sense, his personality was one in which um, it was not one which was, which was well suited to the sort of political environment that he was in. He'd grown up as, as, a, as a communist apparatchik, as a guy who believed if you said something, people should do it, or at least they should appear to do it. So he wasn't, he wasn't attuned to compromise. He wasn't attuned to talking things <coughs> to talking things through. Now, it's not only a function of his background, because Gorbachev came from sort of a similar background, but he did in many ways go to the opposite extreme and try to talk things through too much. But Yeltsin was clearly someone who could not function very well in this sort of system because of his temperament. Also, I think, there was a fundamental, uh, a, f a fundamental uncertainty in Yeltsin about the reforms and about how far change should go and how fast change should go. And the best reflection of this is to look at his attitude to the communist past, which is, by and large, he was, he was very negative about it. But then on occasions he'd say things that weren't quite so negative, even positive. In other words, he was in the position where, as Gorbachev was, I think, he knew that the change needed to be made, but he wasn't certain what the best form of change was, how far it should go, and how fast it should go. Now, in those sort of circumstances, you would think the best thing to do would be to negotiate. But I don't think Yeltsin was temperamentally able to do that. So I think for those sorts of reasons, the presidency under Yeltsin was, uh, was weak. He was a weak one. Now, why was Putin a strong president? Well, the first thing is that he wasn't Yeltsin. And that gave him an enormous boost to begin with. Because by the time Putin was, uh, Putin was elected in, uh, in 
2000, in 2000, was uh, elected as president in 2000, made acting president on New Year's Eve. Um, he, was, he clearly seemed to be a contrast to Yeltsin, <clears throat> not just in terms of uh, physical ability, because clearly he was, he was younger than Yeltsin, he was fitter than Yeltsin, but also in terms of decisiveness. And here the, 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 um, uh, the military action in Chechnya at the outset was very important, I think, in setting this, this image of Putin as someone who could actually get things done. We're talking image, we're not necessarily talking reality. And so this gave him basically a good, a good start, if you like, in the, in the public opinion the public opinion stakes. And by and large, he was able to maintain uh, that good image in public opinion. And he's been able to maintain that, by and large, uh, at, a very, at a very high level. There have been a couple of dips, but the dips have been into the 60s, so it's still sort of quite strong. Like Yeltsin, he too has sought to create a sense of charismatic uh, charismatic legitimacy, and this is the way that he sought to do it. The, he's the man of action who drives the trucks, who fishes, who dives and finds Greek amphorae, who uh, who wrestles lions and does whatever else he whatever else he does. I mean, there's been this conscious attempt to to to, to project this positive this positive image. Of course, relying upon a cult in a sense like this, given in in a, in a society in which the media has been freed up also means that what you get is sort of an anti-cult, and there's been an anti-cult uh, of Putin as, as well, or a cult that makes fun of him, if you like. So this first point is that, that basically he's not, he's not Yeltsin, and I'll talk about public opinion polling uh, a little bit later. The second reason is that, is that he, he effectively appropriated or if he didn't appropriate it, if, if he, thought, he, he thought it before, moved close to the political positions of the nationalist right. Not the extreme nationalist right, at least to begin with, but a lot of the policies that people on the right, and I include in this uh, Zhuganov, the communist, under, under Yeltsin, Putin gave voice to a lot of those policies. So that in effect what happened was that a major grouping which had opposed Yeltsin was transformed into a support base for Putin. Zhirinovsky's Liberal Democratic Party of Russia and uh, Zhuganov's Communist Party of the Russian Federation were both major opposition groups to Yeltsin. They've been major support groups to Putin. They have occasionally voted against uh, things in the State Duma, but overwhelmingly they have supported the agenda that Putin has put forward. And so by appropriating those sorts of policies, or by giving voice to those sorts of policies, uh, what he's done has been to, to transform a major opposition group into a major support group, so that you don't get the same sort of situation of, of numerous voices criticising the President that you had under Yeltsin. Thirdly, he inherited an institutional power base. Now, I, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not trying to argue that Putin is, as the former KGB officer, has got the secret police in power. 
I'm not arguing that at all. What I'm saying is that he was able to rely on that security apparatus for a significant number of people to move them into positions of authority throughout the system whose loyalty to him was reinforced by this institutional, common institutional background. Okay, so it's not an argument about the Siloviki running things and it's just the old KGB come back. It's an argument about the sort of mindset and the sort of loyalty that comes from existing within the same sort of uh, institutional power base and carrying that forward. Fourth is that he's been able to, in addition to this, he's been able to construct his own power base. He strengthened the presidential administration that Yeltsin had already uh, set up. So that it's become, uh, it, it seems to operate much more effectively and to have much wider scope of, uh, of activity and responsibility than it had under Yeltsin. He's pulled into what they called the power vertical, the regional chieftains, the regional governors. By establishing this sort of power vertical at the start of the 2000s, he tried to create an institutional structure which would <coughs> regional governors much more under central control than they were uh, under Yeltsin. Hasn't worked completely, but there's clearly more central control than there was. But what he's also done has been to establish or to link himself with the so-called party of power. In other words, a political party that was set up essentially to support Putin, United Russia. Been now going for, I don't know, 15 or 16 years. It's clearly not an effectively working structure in that it's not sort of really um, efficient in the way that it works. But what it has done has been that it has pulled into line people who, under Yeltsin, could do what they want and act as opposition. So that United Russia has been able to gain majority in the State Duma and thereby to ensure, by and large, that Putin's legislation passes without problem. Also, most of the governors became members of uh, United Russia and therefore, again, to the extent that there was party <coughs> discipline, they were pulled into line as well. Uh, next is policy popularity and ideology. Here, he was lucky in the sense that uh, the, uh, the economy really took off from the time he came into power until about 2008. That was, uh, that was mainly due to increased oil and gas sales, but the, the economic reforms that he introduced early in his term did assist in that economic upturn. That created a, a positive basis for him uh, <coughs> going forward. In addition, his, um, his um, making the argument that Russia is a great country and it has a great past and a great future, coupled with the argument that Russia requires a strong state, strong both domestically, strong internationally, also appealed to large numbers of people. So that he was able to put forward policy programs which many people supported. And this has been reflected in his public approval rating. I mean, if you look at the approval ratings there, they, they're, clearly, they're clearly very high. Um, 
But you can see that with an approval rating of, of, of a low of 64, they're the, sorts of, they're the sorts of approval levels that most Western politicians would actually kill for. Now, OK, this is from the Levada Centre. Uh, it may be that, that they're inflated, but they're not going to be inflated all that much. I've put down is electoral support for the whole period. And the electoral support in the, in the four elections, if you compare the, the, the stated figure, which is what's here, with the exit polls, the stated figure is up a little bit. But we're talking to perhaps 3%. We're not talking 20%. So that Putin has been easily re-elected each time. And he doesn't need to fiddle the election. Didn't hasn't up until now anyway. He needed to fiddle the election in order to get to get voted in, because he has this popularity. The final reason for his uh, being a strong president uh, is repression. I mean, it's quite clear that that what Putin has done has been to, if not directly direct, immediately direct actions against dissidents. And I mean by dissidents, political opponents. Um, if he hasn't directly done that, he has at least created a system in which people believe, people in the security services, people in the, the um, uh, regional administration and so forth, what he has done at the very least has been to create a system in which they believe that in order to get on, in order to get into Putin's good books, this has to be done. So clearly, responsibility for the repression needs ultimately to be sheeted home to, uh, to Putin. And up until now, that repression has by and large worked. Now, what about, what about the future? Because this is going to tell us a little bit about whether the system that he's created is actually strong enough to survive without. <clears throat> I think there are, there are problems. One is, I've talked about the way in which he's created stronger central control. And he has, but there are limits to it. You only have to look at the televised sessions when Putin sits down with the ministers, which he sort of does quite often. It's quite interesting because, because constitutionally he shouldn't be doing this. It's the prime minister who should be working with the minister, not the president. But the his president sits down with them. Usually, the first part of, of his discussion, which they will show, is Putin giving a monologue. And most times, his monologue consists at least in part of saying, we decided to do this and it hasn't been done. Why not? Who's responsible for not carrying out this particular policy which we decided on, or that particular policy? And what that suggests is that it's the old Russian problem. What gets decided at the centre doesn't necessarily get carried out in Vladivostok or even places closer to Moscow. So there are limits to the, the central control that actually exists. Secondly, one line of thought about Putin is that Putin is not a powerful president. What, because what Putin does is that, all, is that he sort of tries to sit above the bureaucratic conflict that goes on it's usually discussed in terms of, of conflict between different branches of the Siloviki, of the, of the security and military apparatus. And what he does is that he sort of 
favours one and then favours the other and favours this one. And so it's a, it's a view of Putin as playing off the cliques or the clans or the factions. I'm not a great fan of that as an explanatory structure for Russian politics. But nevertheless, there clearly are factional divisions and there clearly, clearly are bureaucratic divisions. And I think it is correct that under Putin, the Siloviki have become more powerful and that he has played a role in limiting potential conflict between them. Whether that role can continue to be played by somebody else is a bit unclear. He played that role under Medvedev, when Medvedev was president as well. He kept everything under control. The bureaucracy, he kept the bureaucratic conflicts, if you like, relatively under control. Once he goes, once he gets older, there's an issue as to whether this can continue to be done. Economic reform. There's an issue of economic reform. I mean, it's quite clear, according to people who know, that there is a need to reform the economy, that, 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 that currently this, this hybrid that they have of a state-functioning sector and a, a sort of semi-private sector and a private sector is not optimal if what you're trying to do is to produce a society in which there is, there is uh, growing wealth and uh, well-being for everybody. There is clearly a need for, for economic reform and Putin has shown himself unwilling up until now to grasp that nettle. Associated with that is of course corruption because corruption is a major problem in Russia. Putin has, since, the, since his re-election in 2012, mounted or given voice to a, an anti-corruption campaign. Most of the people who have been caught up in it are relatively low level and it's not clear that it's been used, for example, as Xi Jinping's used that in China to get rid of political enemies. Putin hasn't done that, but he also hasn't touched the people at the top, with a couple of exceptions. So, so the issue of economic reform is clearly one which is, which is pressing and is going to need to be picked up sooner rather than later. The effects of an assertive foreign policy. Um, again, it's quite clear that Putin has pursued a much more assertive foreign policy than did his predecessor. And it's also clear that in many respects that foreign policy has backfired. I mean, People, people in the West often talk about Putin as the master tactician, master strategist. Well, if he's a master strategist, why is it that, that all of these sanctions have been imposed? Couldn't he have foreseen that as coming? Why is it that now even some of his, some of his supporters or some of Russia's sort of supporters in Europe, like Germany, are taking a firmer line? It's quite clear that that, that, that there, is, there is an issue here about the direction of Russian foreign policy and the way it's going, and that's not going to be resolved by any turn to China or any turn to the BRICS or to the East. The centrality of leadership position to the system and who can succeed. Putin has created a system in which the president is crucial. Is crucial not just for the bureaucratic conflicts, he's crucial to make it work, he's crucial to keep it turning over because he's a heavily bureaucratised structure. So he's going to need to have somebody 
with the power, the persona, the skills to replace him in that system if the system itself is not going to grind to a halt. But also what he will clearly want is somebody who is going to defend him or protect him. When Putin came into office, the first thing he did was to pass an immunity law, that is, a law that said that all presidents and their families are immune from prosecution once they step down. They're immune while they're in office. That's not an issue like apparently it is here. But this made them immune when they stepped down as well. Now, any law can be reversed. And clearly what Putin will want is, uh, is somebody who will guarantee to him that they will protect him when they go. Rising popular activism and protest. <clears throat> We've seen over the last six or eight months uh, uh, levels of popular protest which uh, probably match those of 2011. But what is more interesting about them is the nature of the people who are doing it. Because it's now much more widespread throughout the, the, the sections of the population. And it's not, main, it's not just in the big cities as 2011 and 12 mainly was. Now, it's clear that this rising popular activism has had an effect on Putin. I mean, he watered down the pension uh, provisions. Provision was to increase the pension age. Putin has watered that down largely in response to this sort of popular activism. The question is whether they have a, 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 an answer to this or whether the genie is effectively out of the bottle. I think they were quite successful and quite cunning in the way they handled the 2011 protests uh, where what they did was they combined apparent concessions with, um, with repression but of course those protests weren't helped by the, the ham-fisted way in which they were organised. It's not clear that that combination of repression and, and concession will work again because of the nature of the people who are involved in it and, and there's a broader range of issues that are, that are sneak, sleeping, sne sneaking into the, 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 the protest um, portfolio. And finally, there's the lame duck principle. Henry Hale wrote this book about patronal presidents and he argued that, uh, that when president is clearly seen as a lame duck, those people who supported him in the upper reaches of the political system begin to look around for a replacement. Now, I think that's an argument with a lot of merit. Putin, at the moment, he's only just been re-elected, so it's probably too early. But if we assume he's not going to either change the constitution or seek to do what he did with Medvedev, which is stand out this time for six years and then come back. And I think, I think he won't do that. Um, and I doubt he'll change the constitution. That means that he'll become a lame duck very soon. And the danger is that if he does become the lame duck, the balancing of bureaucratic forces is going to become more difficult and potentially you could see a major conflict at the top of the political system in Russia. So it's very important for the stability of that system and the survival of that system, as is, that Putin resolve this lame duck uh, 
situation as soon as he can. <laughs> Thank you. I've gone over time, so I'll stop there.